everyone. And it's, it's well worth leaving that passage open. Um, it, in the pew Bibles there, if you've got one of those in front of you, it's page 1834. Uh, page 1834. Um, but I'm going to ask you also, if you're willing, uh, to also use another finger to find Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 18 to 25. That's page 1747, I think, uh, of the few Bibles. And for the first little bit of uh, us looking at uh, Colossians 3 together, we'll be bouncing between both of those. Uh, so um, feel free to use a finger or if you've got something else that you can uh, just put a little bookmark in uh, Romans as well. I think that would be helpful as we look at these verses together. Uh, we're looking at Colossians 3, uh, 1 to 17 over these next couple of weeks. And um, they're going to give us, a, I think, a remarkable sort of picture from what we've seen in Colossians 1 and 2 of uh, the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Uh, we're going to see the difference that makes in the details of our lives. And it's uh, an extraordinary uh, passage that we have in front of us. So I'm going to ask God to uh, help us to hear him well as we look at it together. So please do pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. Uh, we thank you that you have... Uh, saved us to be uh, those who gather to hear you speak, that you may change us to be more like your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. And so we pray for that purpose to be amongst us uh, this day. We pray for hearts set on him, minds set on him. We pray that you will continue to transform us into your image, that we may live to please you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And I think also there are outlines as well, if, if you'll find that helpful there, just, just at the back. Uh, let me start with this. Uh, there's a, a book that I read um, a year or so ago while on uh, long service leave, and it's the sort of book that you need uninterrupted time to read, 600-odd pages worth. Uh, a book by a, a non-Christian historian called uh, Tom Holland, and he wrote a book called Dominion. And in that book, he makes, uh, well, as I said, a very lengthy argument that the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, a gospel that he himself doesn't believe, the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, crucified and risen, is actually the most powerful revolutionary force in our world. Uh, and for, uh, he, he traces through history, especially history of the Western world, to, to argue this. He, he argues that this gospel that we treasure as a church uh, has shaped whole nations, it's shaped government systems, it's shaped our pursuit and our love of human rights, it's shaped scientific pursuits, you name it, it's uh, driven these things. And he argues it continues to change our world. Here, here's a quote uh, from him, I think it will come up on the screen. Uh, it is manifest in the great surge of conversions that has swept Africa and Asia over the past century, in the conviction of millions upon millions that the breath of the Spirit, like a living fire, still blows upon the world. And in Europe and North America, in the assumptions of many more millions who would never think to describe themselves as Christian, but are all heirs to a revolution that has at its molten heart the image of a God dead on a cross. Uh, there's his argument that all over the world this gospel is bringing change. And he, he, in many ways he's echoing what we read earlier in the book of Colossians. If you've got Colossians open there, if you can work out where all your fingers are right now with all the different passages. Colossians 1 verse 6, do you remember this verse? All over the world this gospel is bearing fruit and multiplying. 
Uh, it is a global movement that this gospel, the gospel of Jesus crucified and then raised from death, is bringing. And yet, uh, the gospel's revolutionary power is actually most clearly seen not in nation states and in uh, human rights systems or anything like that. It's actually most clearly seen in the change the gospel brings to individual lives, in the change it brings to even local churches like ours. Again, Holland picks up on this. Here's another quote from his book. Uh, to attempt to, to trace Christianity's impact on the world is to cover the rise and fall of empires, the machinations of kings, the arguments of theologians, but it hardly tells the whole story. The vast majority of the revolution occurred in homes and local churches where this revolutionary gospel was handed down through generations. Uh, and what we have before us today as we look at Colossians is the gospel's power to not just bring a multiplication and fruit all over the world, but to change us personally. Uh, we're going to go from that revolution of 1 verse 6 to chapter 3, where we're going to see how this gospel has the power to change us and our hearts and our lives. And that revolution, and hopefully you've got Colossians 3 open in front of you there, can be captured with these words in the very first verse of our passage. Here's what is true of you if you have come to receive Christ Jesus by faith. You have been raised with Christ. Christian brother or sister, I want you to see in those words and underneath those words the, the revolutionary change that's actually happened in your life when you came to receive Jesus by faith. Uh, you and I live in a world where, for all intents and purposes, death still seems to reign, doesn't it? Uh, you see it in the evil of uh, the war fields of our world, the, the evil uh, in the, the likes of Ukraine at the moment. You see it in the packed halls of the oncology wards of our hospitals. You see it in the reality of our own oncoming death. But here's the revolution of faith in Christ. Death's reign in your life is over. It's over. By faith in Jesus crucified and Jesus risen from the grave... We're told, and this is what we saw last week in chapter 2, what happened to him in death and resurrection will happen to us. You have been raised with Christ. That's already the reality of your life. You are, we're told in these opening verses, you're alive with him. But here's the thing of this revolutionary change that's happened by you receiving Christ by faith. Verse 3, if you've got it open there, have a look. It's hidden. This revolutionary change that's happened in your life, it's hidden. Uh, this new life that we have by faith in Christ, it, it, it can't be seen in our world. Uh, and that rings true, doesn't it? If you were to observe the typical Christian going about, we, we've heard already two examples of what people will be doing tomorrow at, at around 10am. If you were to observe us as we commute to work or we go about a business of, of the day tomorrow, we will look all very ordinary, very ordinary, hardly revolutionary. And that is because, chapter 3, verse 3 of Colossians, our new life in God is actually hidden at present. It's hidden just as Christ is hidden from our world. It's hidden from our own eyes. Uh, it's hidden from the world's eyes, but it's only hidden for now. When your new life, as those who are raised with Christ, uh, is revealed, we're told it won't be hidden forever any more than Christ will be hidden forever from our world. When that day comes, you see there, verse 4, you will be revealed. The true you, the you that is already the case by faith in Christ. When, when Christ, who is our life, appears, we who by faith have received him will appear as we truly are. And when we appear, 
what will we see? Well, this is what's so brilliant about these opening four verses of Colossians 3. They actually show us what we'll see on that day, what is already the case. Here's three things that will appear on that day. Uh, first of them, you can see in verses 3 and 4, is this. You already have a new life. When by faith you died and were raised again with Christ, the most important relationship in your life, that is your relationship with your Creator, changed forever. I mean, consider the nature of that relationship before you came to faith in Christ. And this is where you're going to have to use that finger that's in Romans chapter 1. Uh, jump with me back to Romans chapter 1, because I think the Apostle Paul, who wrote both Romans and Colossians, is deliberately echoing himself here. Uh, Romans 1, it shows us the, uh, Romans 1 verse 18, it shows us what our relationship with our Creator, our God, was like before faith in Christ. It was marked by two things. Verse 18 of Romans 1, your sin and God's wrath. They were the two things that marked our relationship with God. But now, and you're going to have to jump back to Colossians here, Having, been, having died and being raised again with Christ, as we've seen over the last few weeks, by faith, your relationship with your Creator, with your God, is now marked by two entirely different things. Uh, Colossians chapter 1 captured this for us. So if you look at Colossians 1 verse 14, I'm sorry, we're jumping around a bit here at the start. But here's the first thing your relationship with God is now marked by, His forgiveness. His complete forgiveness. Uh, and then this. Colossians 1 verse 10, his pleasure. Do you see how different that is? You've gone from it being marked by your sin and his wrath to 1 verse 14 of Colossians, his forgiveness. 1 verse 10, his pleasure. You can live worthily. You can live to please him. That's a big life change, isn't it? And surely that changes life even now while we wait for that life that's already the case to appear in this world. It means that in this world, I, I, I can live as one who has the confidence and the comfort of knowing that I'm at peace with God and nothing can change that. Nothing. It means I can live with the purpose of, of knowing as I go about whatever Monday will involve for me, I can please him. He, he's pleased with me. And not because of me, but because of my faith in Christ. My life has changed forever. But here's the second change that we'd see when our new life is revealed. Verse 1 you now have a new heart. When by faith you died and were raised with Christ, it, it actually changed your heart forever. And again, I'm going to ask you to jump back to Romans 1 and verse 21 to see this. Consider your, the setting, the direction of travel that your heart had before you came to new life in Jesus. Romans 1.21 says this of your heart. Your, your heart knew there was a God, but it didn't love him. And it certainly didn't seek him. Romans 1.21 says our heart was actually set on the earth. It was set on creation rather than the creator. That was its direction. It is, as Jesus says himself in uh, Matthew 6, our hearts uh, without God were set on what we eat or what we drink or what relationships we might have or what others think of us or what success we can have in this world or what health that we might be able to maintain or what we might acquire. They're, they're, they were the apex of our heart's desires. That's what we, we were seeking. But again, see the revolutionary power of receiving Christ Jesus by faith. It, it means that we're given new hearts with new desires that unlike any other thing that we might seek, this desire won't disappoint us. 
And so jump back to Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, and you'll see where our hearts are now set. We are people whose hearts are set now on things above. Our hearts are set there because he's there, our saviour, our life. Our heart seeks things above means that our hearts pound for Christ. He is our first love. To seek things above is to seek him. And here's the third and final change that we will see when we are properly revealed on that day that Christ appears. Not only do we have a new life and a new heart, verse 2, we're given new minds. Again, when by faith you died and were raised with Christ, it changed your mindset forever. And this is the last time I promise that we'll do this. Uh, jump back with me one more time to Romans 1 and you'll see it again there. Romans 1 verse 19, it shows us the mindset we have before we're given new life in Jesus. Uh, Romans 1 verse 19 is actually a devastating picture of the secular mind that, that, that rejects God. Here's what it says. Such a mind suppresses the truth about God. Even though, one, Romans 1 19, even though that truth God has made plain to see, it's a suppression that, if you look at Romans 1 verse 25, leads to the most tragic of all trades. We exchange the truth of God in our minds for a lie. But again, such is the power of receiving Christ by faith. My, my mind is actually now being wholly renewed. To be uh, Colossians 3 verse 2, and we're finally back there again, set on things above. That's my mind now. Set there, not in denial of earthly realities below but endowing those realities with infinitely more weight now it means that i can live life and view life in this world and all the details of life in this world where absolutely everything is viewed through the one who holds it all together the one for whom everything is for now whatever i do as we see near the end of uh, colossians 3 whatever i do whether in word or deed i can do it for him do you see the revolution that comes about when you receive Christ by faith? You're given a new life, a new heart, a new mind. This is actually what Paul meant uh, in really the key verses in Colossians 2, verse 6 and 7. When he says you've received Christ, this is what you're saying about yourself. My life is above with him. In receiving Christ, you're saying my heart is above with him. In receiving Christ, you're saying my mindset is now set above with him. And it also is what he meant by the next verse. Uh, remember Colossians 2 verse 7, we were told, having received Christ to keep walking in him, we're called to root our life in Jesus. This is what he's talking about in Colossians 3. And at this point, we need to, we need to acknowledge just how bizarre the Apostle Paul's metaphors are. When he was talking about uh, living the Christian life, last week he said, I want you to walk by putting roots down deep. Now, that doesn't seem to work, but that's what he's saying. Walk by putting your roots down deep in Jesus. Now, what he's saying is those roots are actually up, not down. They're upward. No wonder Christians look weird in this world. Uh, Colossians 3 verses 1 to 4 says, you have to live life upside down. That's what you're meant to do. The Christian root system, what you're founded on in your life is, is upwards. It's what we saw back in chapter 1, verse 5. You are, you're, you're rooted in your hope that's actually stored up in heaven. You're rooted, chapter 3, verse 3, in the life you have with him there. Do you see the revolution that's come about in your life? God has actually, by faith in his son, turned your life upside down. It's actually the right way up, finally. 
It reminds me of uh, Mr. Squiggle. You remember Mr. Squiggle? It was always the right way up, right way up. That's what God has done through the gospel. Here's, and here's the most wonderful thing about what he has done. The more we set our hearts on things above, the more we set our minds on things above, those realities, the more that invisible revolution that's already taken place will start to show itself in visible ways in the details of our lives. And over the next few weeks, we're going to see that revolution changing visible details of our lives. And, and uh, just for a few minutes uh, today, I want to show you the two that uh, the Apostle Paul speaks of in verses 5 to 8. He gives us two examples of things that will change or start to change the more we set our minds and hearts above. It'll actually bring revolutionary change to our attitude to sexuality and it will bring revolutionary change to the words that we speak. Let's think briefly about each of these in turn. Firstly, uh, what I've put on the outline there, the sexual revolution that it will bring about. Verse 5, here's what we have the power to do when we set our minds and hearts on things above. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Now, I'm not going to ask you to go back there, but again, there are echoes here of Romans 1, where hearts set below, it ends up leading to this very thing, sexual immorality. Uh, Romans 1.25 says this, that without Christ, our hearts and minds tend to take good gifts of God create, God's creation, gifts like the gift of sex, a gift for marriage, a gift to express oneness and faithfulness and, and bond in marriage, the gift that he has given us, our earth-set hearts end up taking that gift and twisting it such that the good thing that he has given us actually becomes an ultimate thing for us, an idol that our hearts desire, that our minds get fixed on. Sex becomes a, uh, goes from being a good gift to a God and we're told the idols that we have in this world, uh, the Old Testament tells us, they're miserable gods, they're burdens. We end up making this an ultimate thing and so it becomes in our world a destructive thing. Now there's all sorts of examples that we can think about today of what that might look like as it speaks of it here in verse 5 but let me take the most literal example, that word in verse 5, sexual immorality, it's a Greek word... Uh, porneia and it covers all sorts of things I'll mention that in a second but the most literal example exhibit A that I will give you is pornography uh, did you know that pornography is a 97 billion dollar industry in our world 97 billion dollars 35 percent of internet downloads uh, each day are for pornography it dominates the internet Earthbound hearts and minds tend to trade God's truth in for lies. We saw that in Romans. And the lie here is that pornography is anonymous, harmless fun. But that is a profoundly destructive myth. And if you look at our passage, do you see what it says just after showing us these things in verse 5? Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Our God stands utterly opposed to what we have done with his good gift. And so knowing this, we who have been raised with Christ, we who have uh, hearts now set and minds now set above, we are, verse 5, to put sexual immorality to death because it's part of the old nature, not the new. 
But to do that, and verse 5 helps us with that, we need to deal with the problem actually in our hearts and our minds. Uh, uh, what's fascinating to me is what we can end up doing with a verse like verse 5 is it sounds like a list of rules. Here's some don'ts for the Christian life. And uh, quite often they're helpful, but in this case profoundly unhelpful if you've got a bible open there and it's an niv more than likely the the heading at the top of chapter three is going to say this rules for holy living which is ironic if you go back just one verse where it says rules have no value and then we get rules for holy living these are not rules what we have here actually is something far more radical because the apostle paul knows rules are powerless that they won't curb this uh, pandemic in our world of pornography And instead what you have, if you look carefully at verse 5, is not an arbitrary list of rules, but it's more like a root system of this sin. Uh, You you see what's at the uh, the top of it there is sexual immorality, which, as I said before, is the, the Greek word porneia, and it's referring to any and all sexual activity outside the purpose for which God has given the gift for marriage. And below that is the root system that that drives that activity, impurity and then lust and then evil desires and then below that greed. But these are are the engine room of those activities. But I want to direct your attention to the very base of the root system. Do you see it there in verse 5? Greed, which is idolatry. Idolatry, which is a heart and mind worshipping created things rather than the creator. That's what idolatry is. Something else has become first in our heart and that's what actually leads up the root system to sexual sin. And so once you've seen the root cause of the problem, our own hearts wrongly set, how do you deal with the problem? Well, let me leave that hanging for a minute. We'll come to that in a minute. But let's briefly see the, uh, the other example that Paul gives us of how this hidden revolution can show itself visibly in our lives. This, in this case, it will be audibly. Do you see it there in verse 8? It's sins that I commit by my speech. And so the speech revolution, verse 8. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. And again, like sexual immorality, God looks at how we, uh, this good gift that he has given us, how we twist his good gifts. Words that are meant to be a source of blessing and life to others become cursing and death to others. And the cause has the same root problem. Our minds, our hearts, the the bottom of the root here, it's actually reverse. Anger is at the bottom. And uh, if you look throughout the scriptures, we're told this of our anger. Jesus says this in Luke 6. He says, out of the overflow of the heart, these words come. And James 4, speaking specifically of anger, says our fighting words, our angry words, come from the desires that rage in our hearts. Such words, again, come from hearts set on wrong things. It comes from idolatry. I wonder if you think about uh, the times where you say things that you would regret, the sort of things that we have listed here in verse 8. Search your heart. The words we regret saying, when we say them, what's in our heart? What idol is being threatened? The idol of power or control over others, the idol of our own pride. It can be all sorts of things. That's what drives these words. When I see my heart as seeking for something other than Christ, then I see my angry words for what they are. They're they're idolatry. 
And again, we've seen the root cause of the problem, but the same question remains. How do we actually deal with this problem in our hearts? How can the hidden reality of who we already are by faith in Christ actually start to show itself in these things? Well, and we'll finish with this, but we'll look at it more next week. Verse 9 has God's three-word strategy to battle sins like this. Do not lie. There is a sense that uh, as we move to verse 9, it looks like just an add-on, another sin of the speech, but it's far more than that. You see, the reality is if we chop away at the weeds of these sins, right at the top of the root system of sexual immorality or, or filthy language or whatever it may be, we, we can chop away, but it won't actually change much. Uh, I remember years ago, my brother and I uh, were given the job of clearing bamboo in our backyard that was sort of growing behind a shed. We'd actually grown it there as a sort of a screening. We thought it was a good idea, but it was not a good idea. Um, and so mum and dad had said, you're going to have to deal with that. And so the first summer, what we did is we just cut it all down. Problem solved. End of story. Uh, next summer, it's back even more prolifically than before. So we thought we need a more serious solution. So my, this was my brother's idea, I promise. Um, we poured petrol all over said uh, bamboo and then burnt the lot. Again, problem solved. Uh, grew back even more prolifically. Uh, and then finally... Finally, we went to the, 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 the garden centre and said, you know, what do, we, what do we actually do about this? And he gave us this tiny little bottle of poison. <laughs> and he says, cut it, pour that in, end of story. And the reality is, often when we're dealing with sins of uh, sexual immorality or sins of speech or whatever it else may be, we stay at the top of the system and all we're doing is just preparing for it to come back perhaps even more prolifically. God says, if you want to deal with it, you've got to go to the bottom of the root system. You've got to go to the lie that's in your heart and your mind. We need to stop lying. We need to tell the truth. What would that look like in these two examples that we've seen? Well, here's, here's what it would look like. We don't lie about these things. We stop trading in God's truth about these things for, for lies. Uh, the lies like this, that sexual immorality or destructive speech don't really matter. It's just who we are. That's a lie. Truth is, verse 6, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. We stop lying that uh, pornography is a harmless, anonymous fun. The truth is, it is a multi-billion dollar industry leading to the subjection, the objectification and the abuse of women on a tragically global scale. All for the whims of lazy, selfish men. It's a lie that the God who made us in his image is indifferent to that. And as for our words, it's a lie that our cruel and careless words don't really matter. Jesus will say in the Gospels, you will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word you've spoken. It's a lie that says such things like sexual immorality or speech sins don't matter to the living God. You want to see how much it matters? Remember what we've seen earlier in this book. It matters enough for his perfect son to give his body over to death to make peace. It matters enough for him to shed his blood, as we'll remember in a moment in the Lord's Supper. How does the hidden revolution of who we have become in, uh, by faith in Jesus start to change our visible lives? It happens when we stop lying. The lie that says, now that I have come to Christ in faith, my old life is still an option. I can live that old life. That's fine. I can keep going. No. 
says the gospel. No more. Verse 3, you died. Verse 10, you've taken off your old self. It's gone. It's dead and buried. It was laid in the grave with Jesus. We stop lying and in the place of lies, we start telling the truth. The truth that we've seen writ large already in the book of Colossians, that you and I are now part of something wholly new. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's the truth. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you're, you're going to appear with him. That's the truth. We tell each other the truth that now we are part of a better story that God is writing in our lives by Christ Jesus. That you, do you see that story? Verse 10 has it in our passage. You're being renewed right now in the image of God. You're being given a totally new identity, completely new. So we tell each other the truth that this old identity we had marked by these things is actually fading in a very complete way. I wonder if you noticed there in verse 11 as Gabriel was reading for us, we had all these sort of concrete identity markers that the Colossian Christians might have previously used to define who they were. I'm, I, I, I'm a Gentile or I'm a Jew or I'm circumcised or I'm uncircumcised, I'm barbarian, I'm Scythian, I'm slave, I'm free. All of these things that used to mark who they were that, that would say this is my identity. They're all gone. And so too for us. My sexuality is not my identity. Can you think of a more revolutionary thing in 2023 than that? That's not who I am. My ego that drives my defensive words, that's not who I am. I don't have to struggle anymore to define myself by some social construct that my generation or perhaps previous generations wants to give me. I don't have to wrestle with my own sort of transitory feelings about who I am that that come and go and change over time. I'm not marked by those things. All such identity markers, whether they be fixed or transitory, are in the end not who I am anymore. Verse 10, I'm being made new in the image of my creator. I'm becoming someone for whom, verse 11, Christ is all. He's my heart, my mind, my life, and he is in all. The old is gone, new come. What a glorious thought that there is coming a day when that new identity will be fully realised visibly. The old me with, with all the sin that comes with that will be gone forever. Don't you want that day? I, I was thinking about that during the week and I, uh, I was reminded of um, a great movie a number of years ago, Goodwill Hunting, um, where the sort of Matt Damon and Ben Affleck characters are the, are the main characters. And uh, Matt Damon's character is actually a, a genius um, and uh, this whole new world is about to open up to him. There are all these different things that he can do, but all he wants to do is just stay with his friend in his old life, uh, what is essentially a dead-end life. And uh, here in this scene here, he's, he's basically telling Ben Affleck's character, that's what I'm going to do, I'm just going to stay as I am. And uh, Ben Affleck's quote uh, back to him is this. You know, the best part of my day is for about 10 seconds when I pull up to the curb to when I get to your door. Because I think maybe I'll get up there and I'll knock on the door and you won't be there. No goodbye, no see you later, no nothing. Uh, I was thinking about that quote this week and I was thinking, I am looking forward to the day when this battle with sin that I have and you have is gone forever. It's gone. That, That guy is gone. No goodbye, no nothing. It's gone. Don't you want the old man gone? Well, here's the truth of it. 3 verse 1 to 4. He's gone already, Andrew, by faith. You died when he died. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And until that day when that hidden reality is revealed fully, our job is to have that 
invisible reality start to show itself in our lives. We do it by each day turning our lives upside down against the gravity of this world. We reset our hearts and minds from the ground to the sky as we start each day. We set them above. We set them on Jesus. We set them on our new life with him. And here's the thing, and we'll see this next week, we have to do that together. We'll need each other's help. Uh, But that's for next week. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your purpose for us is not simply just to forgive our sins and wipe the slate clean as we saw in Colossians 2, but to utterly transform our lives, renew it in your image, that you who are uh, making all things new, you're even making us new, and we long for the day when who we are in Christ will be fully realised and fully appear. Until that day, we pray, Father, set our hearts on things above, our minds on things above where our life is. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen. We're going to sing.